0: Would you read God's scripture with me this this week? The reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. And James and John, son of sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank, and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?" And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
1: Thank you, Andy. Well good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to be with the people of the Lord this week. It's good to see your faces. It's good to talk to you. It's good to hear you sing. And as we were singing those songs this evening, I thought, man, in God's providence, um, sometimes He works things together, even in our order of service, in ways that we wouldn't expect. Um, and that last song that we sang, Is He Worthy, is such a beautiful reminder of God's providence and goodness. I'm so thankful for it and so thankful that you're here with us this evening. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege and my honor to be able to open up the Word with you and for you this evening. And so if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you could turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. One of the things that I've noticed over years of reading good literature and watching good movies and all those sorts of things is that uh, most movies and most good books follow at least some semblance of a similar outline, where in the opening chapters you get to know the characters, you get to kind of see their personalities, see how they interact in particular circumstances, you find out some background information, the table is set for what is to come. And as those pieces of literature, or as those movies begin to move forward, what you see is that the action quickens and the pace quickens until there is one final encapsulatory moment where the whole plot comes together and everything fits into one small piece. And what we have in the book of Mark is really the flop opposite of that. If you've noticed, as we've been working our way through, what what you've quickly realized is that Mark, as a writer, moves very quickly through these storylines. In fact, he takes the first ten chapters of his book to give us the entire three years of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And he spends almost the entirety of the remainder of the book on the last week or two Of Jesus' life. In other words, as we come to these final moments, what you notice as we get closer to the crucifixion is that the story actually slows down. And the reason that Mark does that, aside from just the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that he wants you to see that this entire book comes to this massive pinnacle. That the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what's central to everything else that he has been talking about and that he will talk about. In fact, even broader terms than that, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what the entire Old Testament is leading up to. And it's what the entire New Testament is speaking of. It is the whole of our faith. If we had to pick a pinnacle, a single moment or series of moments in the life of Jesus Christ upon which to rest, it would be this exact piece of time that Mark rests on. And as we continue on this week, we're closing in on the end of what is known as the Great Discipleship Discourse. that begins in Mark chapter 8 and comes to a close in Mark chapter 10, verse 52. So we'll be finishing that up next week. And throughout these weeks, as we've been walking through this discourse, we've noticed several patterns that have emerged. But the primary one, or at least the one that really jumps out if you're paying attention, is that in each of these chapters, Jesus begins to tell the disciples about his pending death. He begins to prophesy his own crucifixion, his trial, everything that he's going to face. And what you notice each time that that happens is that the disciples respond inappropriately. And that's a very kind word for how they respond. We see in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, and Mark chapter 10, and verses 33 and 34. You don't have to remember those, just remember 9, uh, 8, 9, 10, and the, and the number 30, and you'll be able to track these down. These are all the places where Jesus begins to talk about his own coming death. And the reason that the disciples responded so inappropriately in all of these scenarios is because they did not understand what Jesus was saying. They had no comprehension, no use for, no understanding of a Messiah that was going to die. And in fact, in their minds, it would be fair to assume that the idea of a Messiah who was going to die would be worthless. The whole purpose of a Messiah, at least in their mindsets, was one who was going to deliver his people and establish a kingdom and and secure salvation for the people of Israel. And they had all kinds of political presumptions. and and kingdom presumptions about how that was going to play out, but none of them included the fact that the Messiah was actually going to die. And so you see the disciples responding to these heartbreaking words of Christ, and they really are heartbreaking. You see them responding in the most inappropriate way imaginable. They were trying to look for a metaphor, some means by which to understand these claims of Jesus Christ that made no sense to them. In Mark chapter 8, upon hearing the prophecy of Jesus' death, Peter rebukes Jesus. Do you remember that? He actually calls Jesus out. He pulls Jesus aside and says, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you've got to stop talking like this. You're making people uncomfortable. You can't die or you're not the Messiah. Don't you get that? And do you remember the response of Jesus Christ to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan. And then in Mark chapter 9, as Jesus once again tries to foretell his death and give the disciples an awareness of what is to come, the disciples respond in that moment, not by responding to the claims of Jesus Christ, but by beginning to argue with one another about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But maybe the most, maybe the biggest swing and the miss on the part of the disciples is found here in Mark chapter 10. And each time this happens, what you'll notice Jesus do is he responds by graciously teaching the disciples about what the essence of servanthood and sacrifice is. My encouragement to you is to, on your own time, go back and look at those portions of Mark chapter eight, Mark chapter nine and Mark chapter 10, because what you'll find is that Jesus is stating unequivocally that to truly understand His sacrifice will inevitably lead you to a life of service. And that as Dave pointed out when he preached his sermon on Mark chapter 9, the pursuit of greatness in and of itself is not the issue. In fact, it's interesting. We would presume maybe with our understanding of humility that one of the things that Jesus would criticize is the idea that we actually desire greatness. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he says, no, to desire greatness is inherently a good and right thing. The issue is that we falsely believe that greatness is found in making much of ourselves. We have a completely convoluted idea of what greatness is altogether. But conversely, the true greatness is found in lovingly and sacrificially pouring your life out for those to whom God has sent you. And if we had to point to one verse in the book of Mark that encapsulates the heart of Jesus for his disciples and ultimately then for us, it would probably be found in this passage in Mark 10:45 for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question for us as we look at this text this evening is how does understanding the sacrifice of Jesus lead to a life of service to God and others? And for that we look Our text. Look beginning at verse 32. We're going to break verse 32 up into four distinct sections and we'll work through them quickly. Here's how it begins. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now just to stop there to set the scene, this is Jesus' final ascent to Jerusalem. And we've heard these words all throughout the book of Mark, that they ascended to Jerusalem and they descended to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is set up on a hill. So geographically, of course, those were the only two means of getting there or back. But but we've seen that language frequently, but when we hear it this time, in context of what we know is coming, it has a very different sound to our ears. There's a sense of dread as we read this verse in Mark 10, because this is Jesus' final ascent. And when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see his triumphal entry, which is something that we typically celebrate on Palm Sunday each year. And as the time of the crucifixion draws nearer, it is clear that Jesus himself is preoccupied. Now, why do I say that? Look at the next part of the verse, the second half of verse 32. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, that may or may not jump out at you, but that is unique language in the book of Mark. Every time Jesus has been on the road with his disciples, he's been walking with them, he's been talking with them, we can presume that he's been laughing with them and correcting them and doing all of the things that a loving teacher and friend would do with his followers when they're out together but in this passage we're told that something different happens jesus is actually walking ahead of them he knows what lies ahead he's not dissuaded he's not walking away from jerusalem he's not avoiding the faith that he knows lies in front of him but he is certainly preoccupied with it and yet or in addition to that, he is not engaging them as he always had. It's gotta be disconcerting that for three years you've walked side by side with somebody in conversation in good times and in bad times and getting corrected or trying to understand, but here in this moment, all you get from Jesus is silence. And judging from what what Jesus is about to say, it's fair to presume that Jesus is feeling the weight of what lies ahead. And look at the response of the disciples because they certainly feel that something is strange. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And we're not told why the disciples were amazed. We're not told explicitly why they were afraid. It could be that they knew the threats that had been coming from the Pharisees and they had heard that the religious leaders had a plot to kill Jesus. They were certainly aware of that fact. But for all of this time, they've been far away from the religious structure, far away from the religious elite, far away from the Pharisees. There was nothing really to be concerned about when they were out in the middle of nowhere. But now as they're walking back into Jerusalem, the disciples have an awareness that they are walking into the lion's den. This is the center of the religious elite. This is the home base of those who desired to kill Jesus. Or it could be that they were just thrown off because this wasn't Jesus' normal pattern. But regardless of what it was that caused both the awe and the fear, It's fair to presume that they were afraid because they didn't know exactly what lay ahead. But listen, there is nothing safer than following Jesus into the unknown. Verse 32 again, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man that's that favorite moniker of Jesus for himself that comes from the book of Daniel the son of man speaking of himself will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after 3 days he will rise Now this third prediction of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark is the most detailed prophecy that Jesus is given. He specifies the means by which he was going to die, by which I mean he was going to be handed over to the Romans. And what he he says in this passage is reminiscent of what we find in Isaiah chapter 50 and Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet Isaiah foretells the Messiah's death. And Jesus here adds his own details. Scholars point out that the term condemn that Jesus uses here is a legal term that specifically alluded to a trial in which a defendant was found guilty and executed for his crimes. In other words, Jesus through awareness given to him by the Holy Spirit knows that there is a trial that will lay ahead for him at which he will be falsely convicted. And Jesus with his heart of compassion for the disciples wants to prepare them for what lies ahead. And just as he'd done in the two previous passages, Jesus prophesies his own resurrection, which is gonna be important as we move forward. So imagine what it must have been like to be there. The disciples knew Jesus well. They knew that he was behaving out of the norm for what they had witnessed and seen about him. Maybe they weren't exactly sure what to say or what to do or whether they should try to comfort him or just leave him alone. But regardless, they knew something was up. Jesus is acting strangely. He's more withdrawn and contemplative. He, he pulled away from the group. And when he came back to talk to them, he told them explicitly that he was going to be a falsely convicted of criminal behavior, that he was going to be mocked and ridiculed, that he was going to be turned over to Roman authorities and executed. And the response of the disciples is bizarre to us. We're not told that they were sympathetic to Jesus' condition. They weren't heartbroken at the thought of his loss, and they certainly weren't weren't considering rather what it was going to cost them to continue to follow him. But instead, look how they responded beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now this is where we see James and John earn their moniker that they were given in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. I mean, these men were zealous and bold, often, often to their own misfortune. This zeal gets them into trouble more than once, but here you'll notice they came by themselves. They left the other ten disciples behind, and they came to Jesus by themselves, and what they say would be funny if it wasn't so tragic in this moment. They have just heard Jesus bare his soul about his own pending death, and the response is, hey, Jesus, we need to talk to you, and we need to ask you a favor, and, and whatever we ask, we really just want you to say Yes. What a bizarre way to start a conversation. And Jesus is too wise to fall into that trap, and he says, well, go ahead and tell me what the request is first. And they say, well, when you've done all of this stuff, after you've been turned over and you've gone through the trial and you've been mocked and ridiculed and spat upon and are ultimately murdered, when when all of that's done, would you mind seating us in a really prominent position in the kingdom? We'd really prefer the right and the left hand if that's available. If you could make that happen, that would just be really great for us. I mean, they're trying to call shotgun on seats in the kingdom. (laughs) And the rules of shotgun are, of course, unflinching. Whoever calls dibs gets those seats, right? But this is about to backfire on them in a very real and powerful way. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking and just think about hearing those words from jesus they had no idea the magnitude of their request jesus says are you able to drink the cup that i drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized and they said to him we are able And you can imagine them responding with the exact same boldness that Peter responded with when Jesus foretold Peter's denial. Where Peter says, no, I'll never do that, Jesus. Of course not. I know so much better than that. I will always be faithful. I'll always be consistent. There's never a time when I'm going to walk away from you. But Jesus uses these two different pictures to describe what it is he's going to endure. And the first one that he uses is the phrase, drink the cup. And that phrase used all throughout Scripture is most often used to express the wrath of God himself being poured out on people. This isn't just mere human punishment. This isn't just even mere crucifixion. And I hesitate to even use the word mere in front of that because crucifixion is such a brutal thing. But he's saying, no, 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 this is the wrath of God I'm going to have to experience. You think you can handle that? And secondly, he says, can you handle the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And in this context, what he means by baptism is that idea of being immersed, overwhelmed, overcome. With grief and heartache and trouble so difficult that words can't even express it. And we find Jesus using this language elsewhere when speaking of what was to come at the crucifixion. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, Jesus is speaking and he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Jesus is warning them in this moment. He's giving the same warning that perhaps we should receive, which is that Oftentimes, it is a dangerous thing to ask for something that Jesus just might grant. And when they said, yes, Lord, we're able to withstand these things, they had no comprehension of the cost of their commitment. And we understand that because in just a few weeks from this moment, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, we're told of Jesus going into the garden. He's overwhelmed and overwrought. He's he's weeping and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He's completely overwhelmed in a physical sense. And it says this, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, there's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he, that is Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Two disciples that said, Of course, we can handle this, Lord. Of course, we're willing to drink the cup. Of course, we're willing to experience that baptism. Of course, we'll do all of these things that you're going to do. Couldn't even be bothered to stay awake in prayer with their Savior. So, Jesus continues in verse 39 And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, Jesus here is granting them the first part of their request. See, James and John eventually followed through on their commitment. And what brought about all of that commitment, what brought about their willingness to actually experience the baptism that Jesus experienced and to take the cup that Jesus took, what actually gave them the strength and the willingness to do that wasn't their own zeal or their own passion. Their own zeal and their own passion couldn't allow them to stay awake during prayer in Gethsemane. No, what allowed them the ability to experience the brutality of what it was they were going to face is that they saw not only the death of Jesus Christ, but they saw his resurrection. They saw the resurrected, physical, literal body of Jesus Christ standing in front of them. They put their hands up against his hands. They physically saw him. They witnessed him. They watched him ascend to heaven. And everything about who they were was changed instantaneously. These guys who, after three separate prophecies, could not grasp what Jesus meant when he said he was going to die, finally got to the point where they said, we now understand the gospel. We get it and were willing to die for it. And after the resurrection, the passion of these sons of thunder increased exponentially. Because if you remember, James went on to be a pastor at the church in Jerusalem, where he faithfully ministered to the people who gathered there. And he did that faithfully until he was arrested and beheaded by Herod Agrippa, and he became the very first disciple to be martyred. And for his part, John, the beloved disciple, went on to write about a quarter of the New Testament, making massive contributions to the church through the work of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God. And as he's ministering and as he's teaching and as he's writing and as he's caring for the people that God has placed around him, ultimately he finds himself at odds with the establishment. He finds himself arrested and he's taken in. He needs to be boiled alive in in burning hot oil in a cauldron over flame. He is literally dipped into burning oil. And according to Tertullian, a historian and theologian writing in the second century, as John was immersed in that oil and came back out, somehow he was still living. And those who had intended to execute him were so freaked out by the fact that John remained alive that they just said, get this guy out of here, and they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, where he lived out his natural life until he died. And so together, in a fitting irony... James and John were the first and the last of the disciples to die for the cause of Christ. Understand, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus calls us to count the cost of discipleship, he is inviting us to consider those things sincerely. We ought to actually give thought and consideration to what that cost might be. Because Paul is gonna speak about this all throughout the New Testament, and maybe my favorite portion of scripture where he addresses this. He says this in Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse 29. Paul writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw i had and now here that i still have and here's what he's saying when he says the word granted he's saying do you understand christian that to suffer for jesus christ is actually a granting of god that it is actually a privilege to suffer for christ that is so opposite of of everything that we think and believe by virtue of the country that we live in and the freedoms and the liberties that we have and the openness with which we gather, our presumption is that if our ability to gather was ever hampered, that that might be the destruction of the church altogether. Do you understand that what we've been experiencing over the last 220 some odd years in this country, 240 some odd years in this country, is a blip in the history of the world? That the natural means and order of things is that people suffer for the sake of Christ. And Paul says it is a privilege to do that. And how often do we actually consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ? I will admit to you freely, this is a hard one for me. It's a hard one for me. I don't want to suffer. I don't like suffering. But Paul's going to say, I get to suffer for Christ. I get to suffer for the one who suffered infinitely for me? That's a privilege. And listen, in your and my lifetime, the suffering we experience may or may not be persecution, but there will come baptisms by fire. There will come moments of suffering. There will come dark nights of the soul that prove to us where our affections and our hope lie. And Jesus continues writing to them, he says, or speaking rather to them, he says, But to sit at my right hand or at my left, that is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And Jesus is saying, look, there's gonna be a feast that's in my name. And And all the believers of all the days and all the ages are going to be gathered there together, and we're going to worship together, and we're going to eat together. It's actually part of what we remember when we gather for communion. We're looking forward to a day when we're actually reunited in the presence of Jesus Christ, and there's this feast, and there's this party in the name and in the honor of Jesus himself. And he says, there's going to be this party, and it is going to happen, but the guest list is not mine to decide. Where people sit and the seating arrangements, that's not mine to prepare but rather that that God the Father in his sovereign electing grace has prepared seats for those in his kingdom. And we have no idea who might sit in those seats. But here's the guarantee if you follow the logic of Jesus through these last three chapters. The guarantee is that those who end up sitting in those seats will be the ones least expecting it. because they will be the ones who are most aware of the worthiness of God and most aware of their own unworthiness. After all, the last will be first and the first last. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, the other disciples now hear what's just happened. They began to be indignant at James and John. Now, the charitable reading of that verse is that the other ten disciples were just appalled at this behavior of James and John. How dare you guys act like this? You see Jesus is having a hard time, and rather than checking in on him and seeing if there's anything that you need, you go and make a request. I just can't believe you would be so selfish. But personally, and this is just my reckon, I read this as their own regret that they didn't think to ask first. But we don't know. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here's what he's saying. For the Christian kingdom living, living in light of the fact that there is a spiritual kingdom of which we are a part and and of which is being established. For the Christian kingdom living is the opposite of our natural inclination. Everything around us tells us that what we do and who we impress and where we live and how we climb the social ladder determines our value. And those who achieve status and wealth and fame tend to lord their position over others. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. And he's speaking likewise to us. Jesus says the way up is down and the way down is up. The one, the one who is great must be a diakonos. That means deacon. Literally, it means servant. It's the word from which we get our understanding of a deacon in the local context of the church, one who serves the congregation. And as if that's not enough, Jesus then goes on to say, and the one who will be first, not just greatest, but first, is the one who is a doulos, and that's our word, slave. In other words, he's saying for the Christian, there's actually a descent into glory. But the more you are brought low in human terms, the more glory you receive. And understand, he's not advocating some sort of self-flagellation or prepared displays of humiliation to just demonstrate to everybody how humble we really are. This isn't some religious practice by which you earn humility points. But rather, in the words of C.S. Lewis, we're reminded, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And so, as Christians, we reject the world's system of evaluation. Not only in the way that we live individually in our lives and in our jobs and in our families and all those things, but, but we, also, we also ignore it in the way that we function as a church. It's the reason we want to avoid the temptation to become a church that defines itself by its numbers or its human success. It's the reason we heed the warnings of the lifestyle of celebrity pastors whose worth is no longer found in their identity as sons of Jesus Christ, but rather by their social media following or their book sales or their personal notoriety. It's the reason that we as a congregation want to serve one another and love one another and give of ourselves for one another to make much of Christ and of him crucified. And as we've been considering the book of Mark, and considering the question of who is this Jesus, which if you remember back to 11 months ago is how we started all of this. Who is this Jesus? And why did he come? There are probably more reasons and answers to that question than we can count, but, but here is Jesus' answer to that question, at least one of them. And again, we find it in Mark ten forty-five: The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to pay the ransom, the cost of our sin, and redeem us. Now, what do those words actually mean, right? We throw those words around a lot, but we rarely define them. Let me try to explain it this way. When you're living for the glory of this world, when you're enamored with the attention and the favor and the wealth and the fame and the comfort and the distraction, whatever it is that, that is your particular tendency towards idolatry, when you're living for the glory of this world, you are, by necessity, enslaved to its system. You are bound up and chained up by the system through which you are trying to find glory and value. And here's a problem with a system like that. Though you can make great gains, and though you can impress people, and though you can gather wealth, and though you can make much of yourself, and though you can live a comfortable life, or a distracted life, or whatever kind of life you want to live, the problem is you can't rest in a system like that. You can't slow down. You can never stop. Because to stop is to move backwards. You can't fail. You can't slip up. You can't let anyone else get ahead because to do so is to lose your identity and your worth. And by necessity, you are enslaved to whatever defines your identity. But, according to Ephesians chapter 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight... And the word redemption that's used here is is the same word that one would use for ransoming slaves. That not just is a debt being paid here, but someone is actually being made free. That Jesus actually brought redemption. How did he do it? Through his own blood. Through the suffering of taking in the cup from the baptism that he was going to endure on the cross, that Jesus paid the ransom by taking on himself the judgment of God that you and I deserve. It's what we sang about this evening when we said, Who conquered the grave? He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Only God himself could do this. No one else could accomplish it. And you certainly can't do it for yourself. See, when Jesus gave his life as a ransom, not only did he release us from the debt that we owed, not only were our sins forgiven in the eyes of God, not only did he bring us into new life in Christ, but he released us from the slavery of our own sin and our own self-salvation. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, when you finally understand the ransom that I'm going to pay for you, it's going to transform you. It's going to change everything about who you are. It's going to change the things that you value and the way that you live and the priorities that you have and the things that you find comfort in. It's going to shift everything because when you understand that, God, that Jesus Christ has purchased your pardon and made you free, you can now choose to serve others. You can now choose to lay down your life for others. And when James and John experienced and witnessed the death of Jesus Christ, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and realized that new life had been given to them, that they had a new name, and a new identity, and a new hope. And that death itself was no threat. Now they could live for others. Jesus is saying, you're now free to emulate me not to be served, but to serve others. You are now free to live for God, no longer a slave to your own ego. Why? Because in Jesus' forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, you have been given an identity that can never be taken away. And you now have everything you need for this life. So listen, if Christ is all that I need, follow this. If Christ is, in fact, all that I need, then I don't need anything from you. I don't need your adoration. I don't need your praise. I don't need to impress you. I can just serve you. I can just love you. I exist now not to primarily be served, but to serve. And as we come to the Lord's table, This is what we remember. We remember as we take the cup that at least in part what that cup represents is the fact that Jesus Christ took the cup of suffering on our behalf so that we could take this cup as the new covenant in his blood, that a new arrangement has been made, a new promise has been given, salvation full and free, those who trust him. That Jesus underwent a brutal baptism. That his body was torn and shredded and nailed to a cross so that you could partake of it. And that Jesus came to serve so that we could freely choose to serve one another and become slaves of all. See in the the mirror image of what the kingdom is, freedom leads to the choice to serve, not forced upon you, a decision of the will born of a renewed heart in Jesus Christ, and that in part is what we're going to celebrate in communion this evening.